pleasure to introduce to you, and I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen, from your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy, Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shearer, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton. These ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 17 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the Mercury 7. On April 1st, 1959, Robert Gulruth, the head of the Space Task Group, and Charles Dolan, Warren North, and Stanley White selected the first American astronauts. The Mercury 7 were Scott Carpenter, L. Gordon Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Gus Grissom, Walter M. Sherall, Alan B. Shepard, and Donald Slayton. And now a brief biography of each astronaut prior to their selection. Malcolm Scott Carpenter was born on May 1, 1925 in Boulder, Colorado. His parents separated when he was three years old, and when his mother was hospitalized with tuberculosis, he was raised by a family friend. He attended primary and secondary school in Boulder, graduating from high school in 1943. After graduating, Carpenter entered the Navy V-5 flight training program at the University of Colorado. The program was designed to give potential pilots advanced academic training at the same time they received basic experience in aircraft. After a year there, he spent six months in training at St. Mary's Pre-Flight School in California and four months in primary flight training in Iowa. When the V-5 program ended at the close of World War II, Carpenter entered the University of Colorado to major in aeronautical engineering. He received a degree there in 1949. Following his graduation, Carpenter joined the Navy and received flight training from November of 1949 to April of 1951. He spent three months in the Fleet Airborne Electronics Training School in San Diego and was in a Lockheed P-2V transitional training unit at Whidbey Island, Washington until October 1951. During the Korean conflict, he was engaged in anti-submarine patrol, shipping surveillance, and aerial mining activities in the Yellow Sea, the South China Sea, and the Formosa Straits. In 1954, he entered the Navy Test Pilot School. After completion of his training, he was assigned to the Electronics Test Division of the Naval Air Test Center. In this assignment, Cooper conducted flight test projects with the A-3D, F-11F, and F-9F. He then attended Naval General Line School in California for 10 months in 1957 and the Naval Air Intelligence School, Washington, D.C., for an additional eight months in 1957 and 1958. In August 1958, he was assigned to the USS Hornet as an air intelligence officer. This is where he was serving when he received cryptic orders to report to Washington 
in connection with an unspecified special project. Leroy Gordon Cooper, or Gordo, was born on March 6, 1927 in Shawnee, Oklahoma. He attended primary and secondary schools in Shawnee and Murray, Kentucky, where he graduated from high school in 1945. The Army and Navy flying schools were not taking any candidates the year he graduated from high school, so he decided to enlist in the Marine Corps. He left for Paris Island as soon as he graduated. World War II ended, however, before he could get into combat. He was assigned then to the Naval Academy Preparatory School and was an alternate for an appointment to Annapolis. The man who was the primary appointee made the grade, so Cooper was reassigned in Marines to guard duty in Washington, D.C. He was serving with the Presidential Honor Guard in Washington when he was released from duty along with other Marine reservists. After his discharge from the Marines, he went to Hawaii to live with his parents. He started attending the University of Hawaii, and there he met his wife, Trudy B. Olson. Trudy was quite active in flying and the only Mercury wife to have a pilot's license. They were married on August 29, 1947 in Honolulu and lived there for two more years while he continued his study at the university. While he was at the university, he received a commission in the U.S. Army ROTC. He transferred to the Air Force and was called to active duty for flight training on the main continent in 1949. He underwent pilot's training at Perrin Air Force Base and Williams Air Force Base. After he received his wings, he was assigned to the 86th Flight Bomber Group at Landstuhl, West Germany, where he flew F-84s and F-8 jets for four years. He later became flight commander of the 525th Fighter Bomber Squadron. When he returned to the U.S. in 1954, he attended the Air Force Institute of Technology for two years. He graduated there with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering in August 1956 and was assigned to Edwards Air Force Base, where he attended the Experimental Flight Test School until 1957. When he graduated from the school, he was assigned to the fighter section of the Flight Test Engineering Division at Edwards as a project engineer and test pilot at the Air Force Flight Test Center. There he worked on the F-102A and the F-106B test programs. He corrected several deficiencies in the F-106, saving the Air Force a great deal of money. While at Edwards, he read an announcement that the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation had been awarded a contract to build a space capsule. This really interested Cooper. He soon found out Project Mercury was interested in him, too. John Herschel Glenn was born on July 18, 1921, in Cambridge, Ohio. He grew up in New Concord, Ohio, where he attended school and graduated from New Concord High School. He then enrolled in New Concord's Muskegon College, where he received a B.S. in engineering. He had already learned to fly at the small New Philadelphia airfield through a government civilian pilot training program to let men start learning how to fly while they were completing their education. He took the Army Air Corps physical examination, passed it, and was sworn in. However, when no orders came, he took the Navy's physical, which he also passed and was sworn into the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. His orders came right away, and he left for training. He went to the University of Iowa for pre-flight training and then continued on to Kansas for primary training. 
He finished up with advanced training in Corpus Christi, Texas. While at Corpus Christi, he learned that he could volunteer for duty in the Marine Corps and receive a commission in the Marines rather than Navy. He won his wings and lieutenant bars in 1943, and on April 6th of that year, he married Anna Margaret Castor. After a year of training, Glenn joined Marine Fighter Squadron 155 and spent a year flying F-4Us in the Marshall Islands in the South Pacific, flying 57 combat missions. During his World War II service, Glenn flew a total of 59 combat missions. He then returned home to help train other pilots and do some test pilot work at Patuxic River, Maryland, putting new planes through simulated combat missions. While Glenn was stateside, the war ended. Upon the end of World War II, Glenn joined Fighter Squadron 218 on North China Patrol and had duty on Guam. From June 1948 until December 1950, Glenn was an instructor in advanced flight training at the Corpus Christi Naval Air Station. He then attended Marine Amphibious Warfare Training at Quantico, Virginia. By this time, the Korean conflict had begun and Glenn requested combat duty. He flew F-9F Panther jets for 63 ground support missions with Marine Fighter Squadrons 311 and 27. Later, he was assigned as an exchange pilot with the Air Force in F-86 Sabre jets. In combat duty during the last nine days of fighting in Korea, Glenn shot down three MiGs along the Yalu River. For his service in 149 missions in two wars, he received numerous honors, including the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal with 18 clusters. After Korea, Glenn applied for duty at the Naval Test Pilot School at Patuxent River and was accepted. While attending there, he helped to test most of the Navy's new jets, particularly fighters. After graduation, he was project officer on a number of aircraft. He was assigned to the fighter design branch of the Navy Bureau of Aeronautics as a test pilot on the Navy and Marine Corps jet fighters in Washington, D.C. from November 1956 to April 1959, during which time he also attended the University of Maryland. In July 1957, while project officer of the FAU, he sent a transcontinental speed record from Los Angeles to New York. This was the first transcontinental flight to average supersonic speeds. While on duty at Patuxent and Washington, Glenn began to learn more and more about space. He read everything he could find on the subject and kept his eyes and ears open. His office was asked to furnish a test pilot to visit the NASA laboratory at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and make some runs on one of the spaceflight simulators as part of a NASA investigation of various reentry shapes. Glenn would go on from Langley to the Naval Air Development Center at Johnsonville, Pennsylvania, to make runs on the large centrifuge in order to compare data obtained from the simulator with data obtained from the centrifuge while under high G forces. Glenn requested and was given this assignment. He spent a few days at Langley and over a week in Johnsonville, where he helped work out a mission on the centrifuge that simulated the conditions a pilot would go through as he made a re-entry from space. Glenn was also involved in helping to design the Mercury capsule, 
NASA requested service participation in drawing up the plans for the mock-up of the capsule, which it was already considering, pending selection of the astronauts. Because of his participation in the Langley-Johnsonville project, his sitting on a number of mock-up boards in the Navy, and his knowledge of the procedures, it was arranged for Glenn to go to the McDonald plant in St. Louis, where the capsule mock-up was being discussed, and act as one of the service advisors to the mock-up board. Virgil Ivan Grissom, also known as Gus, was born on April 3, 1926 in Mitchell, Indiana. Although Grissom was too short to participate in high school sports, he found a niche for himself in the local Boy Scout troop where he eventually served as leader of the Honor Guard. Throughout high school, Virgil used a good portion of his money to take Betty Moore to the late shows at the local theater. He had met her during his sophomore year, and he immediately knew that she was a girl for him. Grissom was, in his own words, not much of a whiz kid in school. He excelled in math, but only pulled average grades in his other subjects. World War II helped Grissom start forming some personal and career goals. He enlisted as an aviation cadet as a high school senior and reported for duty in August 1944 following graduation. He took a short leave during July 1945 to marry Betty Moore and returned to the base with high hopes of receiving flight instruction and flying combat missions. However, Japan surrendered a short time later and the war ended before he could receive his training. Grissom found himself going from one routine desk job to another, knowing that he had joined the Air Force to fly, not to type. He decided to leave the service. His discharge came through in November of 1945. Grissom soon realized that his limited military career was going to get him nowhere. Eventually, he found a job at Carpenter's Bus Body Works. However, he knew that he did not want to spend the rest of his life installing doors on school buses in Mitchell, Indiana. Therefore, he set another goal for himself. He would earn a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Purdue. While Gus attended classes during the day, Betty worked as a long-distance operator. After class, Gus worked 30 hours a week flipping burgers at a local diner. Their combined incomes plus a small grant from the GI Bill financed the cost of his education and their pint-sized apartment near the campus. After three and one-half years of study, Grissom graduated in 1950 with a B.S. in Mechanical Engineering. After graduation, he enlisted in the Air Force, finished air cadet training, and won his wings. Less than one year later, Grissom was shipped out to Korea to complete 100 combat missions with the 334th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. After spending six months in Korea, Gus reached the 100th combat mission mark. He requested to fly 25 additional missions, but was denied, and he was sent back to the States, having earned both the Air Medal with Cluster and the Distinguished Flying Cross during his tour of duty. The next few years brought a variety of assignments and changes for Grissom. He served as a flight instructor for new cadets, a task which Gus soon learned could be even more dangerous than the combat missions he had flown in Korea. In addition to his duties as an instructor, Gus spent as much time as he could racking up extra flight hours and honing his flying skills. 
He gained the reputation among his peers as one of the best jet jockeys in the business. Finally, after receiving additional instruction at the Institute of Technology at Wright Air Force Base, Grissom attended test pilot school at Edwards. He received his test pilot credentials in 1957 and was transferred back to Wright-Patterson, where he specialized in testing new jet fighters. Then, out of the blue, Grissom received an official teletype message instructing him to report to an address in Washington, D.C., wearing civilian clothes. Walter Marty Sherall, also known as Wally, was born on March 12, 1923, in Hackensack, New Jersey. Sherall graduated from Dwight W. Morrow High School in Inglewood, New Jersey, in June 1940. He studied aeronautical engineering at the Newark College of Engineering from 1940 to 1942. In 1942, he was appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy and received a Bachelor of Science degree on June 6, 1945. Upon graduation, he was commissioned in the Navy as an ensign and assigned to the armored battle cruiser Alaska, which was bound for Japan. But the war had ended by the time he arrived. On February 23, 1946, he was married to Josephine Cook Frazier, and later that year he was assigned to the staff of the 7th Fleet in the Pacific in China. In 1948, after completing pilot's training at Pensacola, he was designated a naval aviator and assigned to Fighter Squadron 71 as an exchange pilot with the 154th Fighter Bomber Squadron. During the Korean War, he flew 90 combat missions in F-84E jets, mainly low-level bombing and ground strafing operations. He was credited with downing at least one MiG fighter and possibly a second one. From 1952 to 1954, Sherall served as a test pilot at the Naval Ordnance Training Station at China Lake, California, where he took part in the development of the Sidewinder air-to-air missile. During one test flight, after he had launched the Sidewinder from his jet, the missile doubled back in the direction of his plane, and Sherall had to use great skill to evade it. From 1954 to 56, he was a project pilot for the F-7U-3 Cutlass jet fighter and instructor pilot on the Cutlass and the FJ-3 Fury. In 56 and 57, he flew F-3H-2N Demons as operations officer of Fighter Squadron 124 on board the aircraft carrier Lexington in the Pacific. In 1957, he attended the Naval Air Safety Officer School at the University of Southern California, and in 58 and 59, he completed test pilot training at the Naval Air Test Center at Patuxent River, Maryland. Then he was assigned to suitability development work on the F-4H jet fighter. He remained there until he was called to report to Washington, D.C. wearing civilian clothes. Alan B. Shepard was born on November 18, 1923, in East Derry, New Hampshire. He attended primary school in East Derry and graduated from the Pinkerton Academy in 1940. He studied one year at Admiral Farragut Academy, Toms River, New Jersey, and then entered the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. He graduated from the Naval Academy on June 7, 1944. After graduation, Shepard was commissioned as an ensign, and during the final year of World War II, he served on the destroyer Cogswell, which was deployed in the Pacific. 
At war's end on March 3, 1945, Shepard married Louise Brewer, whom he had met while he was a midshipman at the Naval Academy. After the war, he underwent naval flight training at Corpus Christi and Pensacola. During training, he was so eager to fly that he studied and received a pilot's license at the Civilian Flying School before winning his Navy wings in March of 1947. His next assignment was with Fighter Squadron 42 at Norfolk, Virginia and Jacksonville, Florida. He served several tours aboard aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean while with this squadron. Shepard went to the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School at Patuxent River, Maryland in 1950, then served two tours in flight test work at that station. During those tours, he took part in high-altitude tests to obtain data on light at different altitudes and on a variety of air masses over the American continent. He also participated in experiments in test and development of the Navy's in-flight refueling system, as well as carrier suitability trials of the F-2H-3 Banshee and trials of the first angled carrier deck. During his second tour at Patuxent, he was engaged in testing the F-3H Demon, F-8U Crusader, F-4D Skyray, and F-11F Tiger Cat. He was project test pilot on F-5D Skylancer and spent his last five months there as an instructor in the test pilot school. Between these two tours from 53 to 56, he was assigned to Fighter Squadron 193 at Moffett Field, California, a night fighter unit using Banshee jets. He was operations officer of the unit and made two trips with it to the Western Pacific aboard the carrier Oriskany. After completing his second tour at Patuxent, he attended Naval War College at Newport, Rhode Island, and was subsequently assigned to the staff of the Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet as an aircraft readiness officer. And our final astronaut is Donald K. Slayton, also known as Deke. He was born on March 1, 1924 in Sparta, Wisconsin. Slayton graduated from Sparta High School in 1942 and then enlisted in the Army Air Corps as an aviation cadet on his 18th birthday. He completed flight training at Vernon and Waco, Texas and received his wings and commission in April 1943. He was then sent to Europe where he flew 56 combat missions in B-25 medium bombers with the 340th Bombardment Group. He returned to the U.S. in mid-1944 as a B-25 instructor pilot and later served with a unit responsible for checking pilot proficiency on the A-26 light bomber. In April 1945, he was sent to Okinawa with the 319th Bombardment Group and flew seven combat missions in A-26s in the Ryukus Islands before Japan surrendered. Slayton served as a B-25 instructor pilot for a year following the end of World War II, and in 1946 he was discharged from the Air Force as a captain. He then entered the University of Minnesota, where he doubled up on courses and graduated in two years with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering in 1949. The Boeing Aircraft Company hired him as an engineer, and he worked in Seattle, Washington for two years on electrical systems and wing designs. Then in 1951, he was recalled to active duty by the Minnesota Air National Guard. Upon reporting for duty, he was assigned as a maintenance flight test officer of an F-51 squadron in Minnesota. 
Then he spent 18 months as a technical inspector at headquarters, 12th Air Force. He was also assigned as a fighter pilot and maintenance officer with the 36th Fighter Day Wing at the U.S. Air Force Base at Bitburg, West Germany. Slayton met his wife, Marjorie Lunny, while he was in Germany. She was working for the Air Force there, and the two were married on May 15, 1955. Returning to the U.S. in June 1955, Slayton attended the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards. He was a test pilot there from January 1956 until April 1959 and participated in the testing of aircraft built for the Air Force as well as some foreign fighter planes. His last assignment in the Air Force was Chief of Fighter Test Section A. Slayton had been assigned to Edwards for four years when Project Mercury came into being and during this time, the Air Force had recently started a new regulation limiting personnel to five years in any one assignment. Slayton began to realize that Mercury was his next logical step since his time at Edwards was nearing an end. Very shortly after he heard about Project Mercury, NASA invited him to Washington, D.C. On April 9, 1959, NASA Administrator T. Keith Glennon scheduled a press conference to introduce the Mercury 7 to the public. Here's a clip of his opening remarks. These men, the nation's Project Mercury astronauts, are here after a long and perhaps unprecedented series of evaluations which told our medical consultants and scientists of their superb adaptability to their coming flight. Which of these men will be first to orbit the Earth, I cannot tell you. He won't know himself until the day of the flight. The astronaut training program will last probably two years. During this time, our urgent goal is to subject these gentlemen to every stress, each unusual environment they will experience in that flight. Before the first flight, we will have developed our Mercury spaceship to the point where it will be as reliable as man can devise. We expect it to be as reliable as any experimental aircraft. After the opening remarks, there was a question and answer session with the astronauts. First question was about how the astronauts' wives and children felt about them being selected. All the astronauts said they had good support at home. Later, someone in the press corps asked about what motivated these men to go to space. Here's the clip. What is the motivation of these men? Uh, let's, the question is, what is the motivation of these men? Let's try that starting from the left and go down. Well, get them to get their hometown and with this? Yes, I think if you gentlemen will, will give your hometown and your age as you do this, this will be helpful to the boys and the on the lenses and also to the report. Their name, first of all, Walter. Name, full name, age, and hometown, please. Okay, my full name is Donald K. Slayton, and my hometown is Sparta, Wisconsin, and uh, my age is 35, and uh, I'm in the Air Force. As far as my motivation is concerned, uh, I feel that this is the future of not only this country, but the world. Uh, we've gone about as far as we can uh, on this globe, and we have to start looking around a bit. 
and uh, it's just the natural expansion of flight and uh, consider it in that light it's merely a, an extension of flight we have to go somewhere and that's all that's left and I'd uh, wasn't around when all the initial exploration was done in this country and around the world and this is an excellent opportunity to be in on something new the beginning of it Alan B. Shepard from East Derry, New Hampshire, and I am also 35. I don't think there's any question that we are on the threshold of space travel. We have seen many evidences along that line. Project Mercury is just one part of the endeavor towards space travel. I quite personally am intensely interested in it and just delighted who have been given the opportunity to participate. My name is Walter Shirah, Walter M. Shirah, Jr. I originally came from Ordell, New Jersey. I think in my answer to uh, what is my motivation, I think it's typical of most of us in this country. We're interested in new things. Aviation has been a new thing. Uh, now it's a 50-year-old thing. I might add that talking to my mother just recently, Asking her if she had any anxieties about this, I had an answer. My father was one of the very early aviators. His parents faced the same problem. So I feel this is an expansion in uh, another dimension, much as aviation was an expansion off the surface of the Earth. I'm Virgil I. Grissom from Mitchell, Indiana. Oh, hmm. my career... How old are you, Mitchell? 33. I didn't say. <laughs> uh, my career has been uh, serving the nation, serving the country, and uh, here's another opportunity where they need my talents, and I'm most grateful for an opportunity to uh, serve in this capacity. I'm John Glenn. I'm the lonesome Marine on this outfit, and I'm uh, 37. Uh, in answer to this same question a few days ago from someone else, uh, I've jokingly, uh, of course, said that uh, I got on this project because it'd probably be the nearest to heaven I'd ever get, and I wanted to make the most of it. But uh, my feelings are that this whole project with regard to, to space sort of stands with us now as, as, if you want to look at it one way, like the Wright brothers stood at Kitty Hawk about 50 years ago. Later in the press conference, someone asked what was the test from the selection process that they least liked. Here's the clip. Johnny Glenn, uh, you, you answer, and then we'll start this way and around that way. That's a real tough one, because there, we had some pretty good tests, but I, I think uh, the test out at Dr. Lovelace's uh, place at Albuquerque out there, uh, certainly some of the tests we had out there were the most trying, and it's, it's rather difficult to pick one, because if, uh, if you figure how many openings there are on the human body and how far you can go in any one of them... And <laughs> You answer which one would be the toughest for you. <laughs> I think he's answered for all of us. <laughs> that was the toughest one for me. <laughs> well, I think it would be very difficult to pick anyone. I think he answered it very well. <laughs> They're all of many different types. Uh, I, I believe that the uh, 
the ones that involve, involved uh, extended effort like the uh, treadmill and the bicycle are certainly the most fatiguing. Well, uh, switch directions from John. The one I had the most difficulty with was swallowing that rubber tube for the stomach, uh, whatever they're doing down there. Swallowing a rubber tube for uh, gastric analysis, I believe it is. The press and the public soon adopted the Mercury 7 as heroes, embodying the new spirit of space exploration. As the astronauts lost their private lives, Project Mercury found its first great publicity. On May 28, 1959, the astronauts were brought before the House Committee on Science and Astronomics in an executive session. They were asked to reassure the congressman that they were content with their orderliness, safety, and seriousness of Project Mercury. This they did vigorously, together and separately, before Wally Sherall mentioned the seven-sided coin of competition over which one should get the first flight. The Mercury 7 were an admirable group of individuals chosen to sit at the apex of a pyramid of human effort. In training to transcend gravity, they became a team of personalities as well as a crew of pilots. All men must balance their hubris with their humility, but as one of those aspiring astronauts said, how could anyone turn down a chance to be a part of something like this? Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.